Hey, everybody. This is Jeff Shulman. And before we begin today's episode, I just want to acknowledge two companies who I am so grateful for investing in a more inclusive future. As you may know, one of the things I'm most proud about is partnering with Marty Burris to launch the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, a program that is empowering inclusion-minded professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product management role. And this started as a volunteer effort, and I'm so grateful that Starbucks was our first sponsor and T-Mobile is a platinum sponsor. Both of these companies are investing in this program that is not just broadening access to economic opportunity, but preparing the next generation of product managers from historically marginalized communities who care to build for everyone. So Starbucks and T-Mobile, these are two companies who it's a pleasure to work with who are investing not only their money, but their employees are investing their time and pouring it into a program that is building a family and preparing the next generation of product managers. So shout out to T-Mobile, shout out to Starbucks, and now enjoy today's episode. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers, but who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I'm the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. And we are having a conversation about platform product management. So every single week at Tuesday, we're here on LinkedIn Live discussing how to succeed in product management. And then this conversation is recorded and released as the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast available on every major platform. And today's a very special day because one of our speakers is a former fellow in the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, and we're just so proud to see her succeeding and giving back and sharing her valuable time and insights with all of you. So please, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in product management. I did not start out as a product manager. I have a background in accounting, and then I transitioned into project management. And from project management, I started to be inquisitive about product management and you know I tried to understand what's the difference between project and product management and these questions got me to take on the program of the IPMA. Before that time actually I actually worked on some products just like I was shadowing just to understand what product management really is about and then I got my offer with American Express as a product manager. Six months into my role as a product manager, then I transitioned into platform product management. Yeah, and, and that's, that's about it. All right. Thank you so much, and thank you for being here. Our other guest seems to be having some technical difficulties. Are you there? Can you hear us? Hi. I hope so. Can you hear me? Yes. Welcome. We're happy to have you here. We were just uh, hearing from our other panelists, and I want to hear from you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in product management. Sure, I would love to. Hi, everyone. My name is Ria Batia. I've been kind of a product manager now for a handful of years, a little more. I started out as an intern at Microsoft working in Azure for a couple summers, actually focused on program management, and then we kind of transitioned the role 
eventually the whole organization transitioned the role to be product and then worked on our Azure compute and then moved over to Niantic, worked on our internal games platform. And now I work on our external AR platform for AR developers. All right, perfect. Thank you. So let's hear from you again. What is platform product management in your mind? What are we talking about today? What does that mean? What does platform product management mean? So yeah, I mean, that's a great question. From what I think it really means is you're kind of building out either a set of tools or services that's going to have a pretty long lifetime. And that's probably going to have help your customers scale too. I think part of platform is that we're helping not only just one developer or one customer do a certain job, we're actually helping millions, if not thousands, or you know, the world kind of do this one job at the same time, and we're supporting you through it. So it's a live sort of growing thing. A platform product can consist of multiple different features, multiple different services, tools, UIs, and we're putting that all together and we're helping you time and time again, either build out software, release new apps, build out cool AR experiences, et cetera, et cetera. And if your company or your business takes off, the platform is going to be right there to support you and support you as you scale. And do you have anything to add to that, Toyobat? Absolutely. Yeah. So the difference on product management and platform product is basically like you're, you're solving more technical problems. You're not just solving customer problem, like um, not the end users, like the conventional product management like we, that we know. You're probably building or supporting platforms for engineers, for data scientists, for probably PMs like yourself in the company, right? And you're creating capabilities for different cross-functional teams. And your roadmap is also very much longer. It's not like, oh, we're building this and releasing. It can be a project as far as five years or 10 years, even more than sometimes you're staying in a company or something. And so last week, the most recent episode, we talked about user personas. And I'm curious, when it comes to platform product management, is the persona, the person you're building for, is it the developer and the data scientist? Or do you also take in mind the person that they're building for? Like, How much does the user of your user come into play as you're developing what you're building? Either one of you could take this. Yeah, sure. So your personas can be different people. Like I mentioned, you're probably building products or supporting products for data scientists or engine. They can be all or one, depending on how they are using your platform. What feature in your platform are they using? So sometimes you need to meet with all of these stakeholders to understand their pain points, to understand what they need for each of their teams, what their long-term goal is, or what kind of solution they're trying to build like immediately. So your personas can be very different. It doesn't necessarily have to be one person at a time, and their needs will be very different. That's why um, one of the important skills for platform product manager is um, prioritization. So you want to make sure that whatever you're doing, whoever you're supporting, you're prioritizing, not just because they need it right now, like what's the organizational goal? What's the business reason for it? So you're kind of linking all of this points together. Ria, anything to add to that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, platforms are definitely interesting because there's, there's always so many personas and, you know, one persona definitely impacts the next. And so I can give you a specific example from kind of the realm that I work in. And so, yes, we provide a platform for our developers, but our developers are creating applications for brands and a bunch of end users or potentially games for all of these end users. So the faster we can get them to focusing on, you know, 
the content for their actual game or experience versus figuring out how to hook together all of these services and tools, the better. But that also means that sometimes we are thinking about what that end user story looks like. Even in my specs, like I always go through a process where we're first thinking about the product requirements. And then we're also thinking about the end user journey because that can sometimes influence how our APIs look, how they kind of streamline together. And honestly, the UX of the product too, and some of the, the UX we end up building into our system to help developers. So we have a mix of product managers and aspiring product managers in the audience. And I'm curious if either of you could give context as to how one of them should decide if they want to try to go into platform product management or whether it might be better to go to a, another form of product management. Yeah. So when you're first starting at your journey, I mean, if you're an entry-level PM or an intern, sometimes you might not even know what a platform is, or you may not even realize that you're on a platform. I mean, hopefully you do, but I don't think I made that distinction early on. I think I was looking for opportunities. I was willing to kind of go wherever I could. And I ended up landing in you know a really fast growing platform which was azure because i saw that growth potential and so if you're thinking about platform product i would say like you have to get into the weeds you have to be okay with you know getting pretty technical and that just means kind of digging in with engineers to understand what the pros and cons of certain decisions could be and how they could impact your product you don't really need to go even deeper than that but you will have to get pretty technical so if you don't like that i mean platform product is probably not the best place the other thing you kind of have to love is that this crazy sense of you have to support something and build something that you need to maintain for years and years to come. So you have to be okay with that kind of scale. You have to kind of also internally understand how your product would scale out as the business scales out. And so, you know, you have to be kind of forward thinking. You're not just working on this one feature that's just going to impact a, you know, a customer in this specific way. It really does have long-term effects. And so if you're deciding to be in a platform product, just understand there are so many intricacies to the job, but I also find that's what's most exciting. And it's something that like, I think I will stay in platform product management for probably the rest of my career because of it. So does that mean that you move slower and you're less experimental given that you're trying to build for the long term? Or tell you about, can you give some color to that as to how it affects, how what Rhea said, how that affects your day to day? Yeah, I'll agree with you. It's more long-term, so you might not see the results of what you're doing immediately. Sometimes you're just creating value. You're not really solving a measurable, in the sense of reward, problem. So sometimes you're basically just being an enabler for other people. So if you kind of like a back-end stuff, you like to be you know, behind the scene, you like to do things at the back door, then platform products might be you know, something you should do. If you also like to understand, like, nitty gritty of everything, like, why is this? So you must be a person that's very curious. You want to understand the why. Always it's the why. Why are we doing this? Why is this this? So you want to have that at the back of your mind. Then one important thing about platform is you always want to build platforms that are scalable. So most of the time we're solving problems that we will not even witness. So we are imagining things, which means you have to be a little bit, crazy to think of, okay, what's the worst case scenario? What happens when we have a downtime? You know, all of those things. So if you are not someone that enjoys all of this thinking process, then platform might not be for you. 
And so with having to think about all the, the bad things that could happen and trying to build scalable from day one, does that change how you approach experimentation and how you approach moving quickly, breaking things fast and learning quickly? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Because um, so while we are creating uh, requirements, we are making sh- we are making sure that we are meeting with different stakeholders, engineers, data scientists, all of this, you know, people that will be using whatever we're building. We want to understand. They need to understand really what we want to do. They need to be able to give us all the possible worst case scenario. We're not going to them like we understand this system. We want them to tell us all these possible use cases because this is what they are using day to day. So they will be the one to kind of feed us into, okay, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? We are basically just building on whatever the insights they're delivering to us to decide on, okay, then this is how we want to work. These are the possible scenarios, use cases that might be happening. These are the things that we've not even started thinking about. So yeah, happy to add some color to what you just said too there. Like totally agree. We're always thinking about all the worst things that could happen, all of the risks. And then how does that actually impact you being able to experiment in the wild? Well, I mean, that's kind of why we do private betas. Like, and we we say that these are not services that we're going to maintain for a long period of time. Like we're literally going to maintain this for maybe a month, maybe two months max. But if you decide to build on the service, like in a private beta sort of format, like we're not going to support you long-term. That changes when you release something publicly because anyone, whether you call it a beta or not, it doesn't matter. You're going to have customers that are using that API. And so when you go out the door, when you're public, like, you really, really need to be pretty solid that you're going to be maintaining these APIs for a long period of time because a customer might be storing, you know, all of their user data with you, or they might be storing X, Y, and Z or using these APIs for like a long running campaign or, you know, whatever it is. And they need to know that you will support them and you're as reliable as possible. So yeah, we can't experiment in the public landscape as much. Like we can only really grow and tweak things that don't impact the developer. But once you kind of release a product publicly, whether you want to call it beta or not, you're supporting those customers for years to come. So you kind of do need to get it as right as possible when you release. Of course, there's nuances with that. But yeah, that's generally how I think about it. So two follow-up questions. One, how do you incentivize somebody to do a private beta knowing that it could collapse on them at any moment? And two, is private betas your main source of experimentation or is there another way that you could build this confidence to launch for the public? Yeah, I mean, right now, like I'm really speaking from experience here, we're a pretty early platform at Niantic and we're really building up this platform as we go with a whole developer community that's also trying to build out um, AR experiences. And this is just such a new industry that, you know, everyone's just figuring it out as they go. And I would say right now, like a private beta is one of the best looks into knowing if your APIs are working. But at the end of the day, we are always talking to customers. We are always getting feedback. So we always, we kind of know the direction of what things would really kill a product in the market versus what wouldn't. Like, what are the things that you need? What are the things that are nice to have? And what are the things that are out of scope? And as long as we nail those things that are, you know, that developers definitely need and we do it in the right way so they can continue to build with us and continue to be supported, like we're going to be okay. I'm sure, you know, you can do more like A-B testing maybe for different UI elements if you have like a browser of sorts or tooling. But when it's coming to the, the actual service, like, I mean, I think another way that you can potentially experiment, I mean, it's not really experimentation though. It's like, 
we put out some APIs out there. We need to understand how developers or how end users are using these APIs. So that's where you have all of these error logs and telemetry and you dig into the data to understand what's going right and what's going wrong. And then you iterate on that, right? You try to get people in the best path as much as possible. And then you kind of build up more cushioning around these APIs or around what the best path is for a developer to get them to their goal as quickly as possible. So you don't need to have it, I mean, I guess completely right, but you need to make sure that you can build that padding in to those basic APIs that you've built or those basic services that you've built. And you have that telemetry to go back and forth. So I don't know if that helped, but I hope it did. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Tell you about anything to add to that? Yes, just to support what she said, from my little experience, I think what has been helpful is getting alignment with everybody. So we can have about 10 hours workshop trying to talk about things. I mean, progressively, not 10 hours at a stretch, but we want to make sure that every stakeholder understands what we're building. We're not just thinking about this, you know, the way we see it. And this gives room for improvement. So sometimes I'm reviewing documents have been existing before I was born. I see documents as far back as 1980 and all them like, oh, so there are some people that are subject matter experts in this you know, whatever we're doing, whatever platform we think we're developing or enhancing, some people know about it. So in a way, my company allows us to tap into these people's experience. These are people that if, it, if they tell you something, it's like they're an oracle. They can tell if this will fail or this will, you know, this will work. So we kind of rely on that to a very large extent before we even go into production or whatever. And I enjoyed this get together because I see how when you stay long in something, you become a master of that thing. And this is a different perspective to just trying different things and failing. Some people will be able to tell you this will not scale. This is it. I've seen use cases like this in my years of experience. So I see the human factor here, which actually is what actually excites me about the platform product management. Any response to that, Ria? Any reaction or whether you're feeling the same? Any difference of opinions or thoughts? No, I mean, I totally agree. There are sometimes oracles in your company, depending on how long your platform's been alive. And, you know, there's just pieces of the platform that you don't really know about until you have to know about it. And then there's always that subject matter, matter expert that'll help you out. So definitely relate to that, especially when I was at Microsoft. There were a lot of those hidden bodies around the platform. And so you've both talked about risk assessment and this fear that it won't be scalable or that something will go wrong that you didn't anticipate. Are there any frameworks that you use for prioritizing the risks that you're going to build for and which ones you kind of let go? Or yeah, any frameworks or thought processes that you use to prioritize among the risks? Yeah, I can talk about how I think about the risk framework. I mean, the first thing that you always need to make sure you're doing is that you can maintain the service over a long period of time. And I can give you an example from my past experience. So we inherited the service. It was a multiplayer service. It was about to launch and you know didn't have formal support within the team yet. And so we kind of took it over. But unfortunately, parts of that service were, were always going down. And so, I mean, the priority for as a platform PM, your priority is always make sure that there's no downtime or there's no customer impact for these long-lived services. So you will do kind of whatever you can to make sure that you're within a threshold that's acceptable and that you're like not taking engineers away from incidents. So I think that's the first thing. But when you're thinking about risk in general, I would say that's actually, as a platform product manager, like we care about 
can we scale this product? Can we go international, right? For example, I work on multiplayer. So our networking stack, like depending on the messages that you send and like where the servers are located, you can have different like bandwidth requirements, latency requirements, round trip requirements, et cetera. So like where the servers are located are super important. So I just wanted to make sure that like we could at least scale regionally in the future, but we didn't need to do that now per se. So just making sure that those things are in the product, you know, spec and the engineers are building that way. But when it comes to true risk, I expect in, like my engineering team to really be on top of that and to explain to product managers or to leadership, like if we make this decision, this is the risk that comes with it. So with every decision and every design, like every feature that we incorporate, like if there is a risk factor attached, that's something I would expect engineering to really like talk about. And then we would prioritize it kind of depending on the developer impact to that certain thing. Yeah, I agree with you. Most of the time I walk into these meetings as if I have no idea. I just want them to do the talking. So I let them tell us all the possible things that they think might go wrong. Mine is to document them, provide use cases if we can reference in any of our you know, archive. And that's their area of expertise. I'm not going to do the job for them. I'm not going to tell them how to do it. And that allows us to have an effective communication because you, you're telling them that you trust their capabilities, their you know, experience and all. So we've got the risks on your customers or your users. What about the risks to your company that, hey, we launched this API, we launched this for free, and then we don't realize how much it's costing us in our own server expenses or other ways that the use of your platform could cause some trouble. So any risks internally that come to mind and how you've anticipated them or thought through them? Well, from my experience, for the most part, we always have a company alignment before anything. So they are already aware of the possible risk that might you know, come with whatever implementation plans we have. And for that reason, if things do not work, it ends up being a lesson learned for us. Nobody's being crucified for it. So this is alignment. We understand this is the risk and not doing anything by ourselves strategies involved. We are not just doing this because we think we should do it. We make sure you are involved from our thought process to implementation. So at the end of the day, nobody takes the blame like, oh, you guys, no, it's not like that. I don't know how it works in other organizations, but that's how we have it right now. Yeah. I mean, alignment is so key, but it's even key for those gaps. So that gap that you mentioned about like, hey, we didn't realize the cost of these servers until, you know, we went out into production is a very real thing that we run into. Of course, you can do a bunch of load testing and you can really like understand what your service is capable of out the door. And that's something you definitely want to do before launching any service, really understanding kind of what, how many users can you support? How many developers can you support? When are you going to throttle them so you don't take the service down? So there's precautions that you can take to make sure that spend doesn't get out of hand. And you're always putting in kind of these throttling mechanisms or API like request limits before you launch. And they're usually pretty conservative to just keep costs down. And before you launch also like, yes, you need alignment on here's what our monthly cost is, or at least you've done that due diligence. You have those answers. And if things shouldn't get out of hand, like they should be controlled so there shouldn't be an instance where a developer, you know, really just takes off and they're able to use the service so much, like, and they're able to just, you know, utilize all compute resources or all whatever resources in the service and take down the service for maybe other people. Like, these are all known things that you can avoid, I think. And then 
Yeah. I think alignment, alignment is key. And it's all about just being able to control that. And if something does happen, you know, being able to be really transparent as soon as it happens with leadership and with, you know, folks that you're working with, with your stakeholders, that this is why it happened. This is what we're doing. And I mean, that's why we do incident reports and we do you know, follow-ups and retros to talk about what happened, why, how do we do this better next time? And it's always a growing process. And even if you have gaps, like everyone should be aligned on those gaps before you even launch. So how do you prioritize everything you said? It seems like it takes engineering time to build, like the throttling mechanisms, the tracking mechanisms. So how do you prioritize how much are you building for like protecting yourself versus how much you're building for your users and your customers? Like what comes first? And yeah, how do you make that trade-off and decision? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. In terms of prioritization, like I think in your basic MVP, you kind of need pieces of all of this, right? To really have a good platform. Because at the end of the day, a developer, if you're early enough, a developer might be willing to grow with you in your platform. They might say, it's okay if you have issues, like we're in this together. But as you grow, that's not so much the case. Like when you launch a product, they're going to expect a certain level of reliability and support, et cetera. So you might have a window of getting things wrong, but we're kind of like platforms have been around now for a long time with AWS, Azure and Google Cloud, and then so many other kinds of platforms out there. Like there are some standards that you need to have built into your system before you can even say that you're a platform company. And I would say like understanding, you know, how you're going to monitor all these services how maybe if you're charging, how you're going to bill and meter that billing on, you know, API requests or whatever your, your business case is. Like, these are just things you kind of need to think about or either say, yes, we're going to provide a solution or not provide a solution right now. And you need, like, there are some, there are some basics. And I would say API throttling and is one of them and authentication to the service is another, because at the end of the day, if someone takes up, takes over your service and they kind of run all those resources, you basically like, that's a huge branding issue, I think for the service, if that, you know, goes on Twitter and all the developers know that this isn't reliable or supported, but if you're transparent enough, you know, it might be, it might be okay, but it just really depends on maybe the breadth of that your platform has and, you know, what kinds of customers you're working with. If they're early enough, then maybe you can get away with a couple, not having, you know, some of those standard things that a platform would have. But if you're big enough and you would risk like, you know, your name kind of getting slandered because of this, that like, you guys don't know what you're doing. Like, you don't know how to run a platform. Why would I put my money into this? That's when it's a huge risk. And I would definitely look very closely at everything you're not prioritizing in that launch. And you need to know about those gaps. If you don't even know you have those gaps, that's even a bigger issue, but at least being honest with those gaps and, you know, the cost it has is fine but you also need to deliver value to your customers as quickly as possible. So it's definitely, it's a balancing act. It's something that you need to iterate on. It's it's something that customer input is so valuable at this stage to really understand what can you not compromise on in terms of value to the developer, but what things can you compromise on to get those like extra additive things that you need just for the basic platform. But you should have buy-in from your organization. Like you should have teams that are hopefully supporting the platform in these different ways. So you can just go and focus on the value add that your service has. So Toya, about I see you come off mute. I do have a, I want you to chime in on this, but also another question is like, when you're just starting in this, like, how do you know these like essentials of a platform that you're supposed to know? Like, does a mentor tell you, do, are there other product managers that kind of say, Hey, you got to get this throttling in place? Or do you just got to f- 
figure it out on the job. So I'll let you share whatever you're going to share, plus that if you don't mind. Sure. I don't have anything to add to what she mentioned with that because um, I can definitely relate with that. But the second question about um, how do you know when, you know, how to start and navigate, I think it takes you to be very curious. For example, for me, it started as I hear them talk about all these big terms and, you know, all this work, like, okay, how is HAMP using this? How is this using? I'm like, what are they talking about? So I started interviewing with people across my teams, talking to different people, trying to understand what they're doing. And I also sought mentors by myself. So I asked my manager, okay, who can I talk to about this? I want to know more about this. And they sent me a bunch of books to read. I could not comprehend many of them. So I started setting up um, coffee chats with different people, asking them, okay, what are you doing? What, how is what you're doing directly, you know, impacting the company? I want to get the whole picture. So these conversations actually allowed me to have a, a broader perspective of what everybody's doing on their respective teams. And that piqued my interest. So one thing to, to start doing is um, you want to be curious. You want to be reaching out to as many people across your organizations, um, depending on the kind of organization you're working with. You want to talk to as much people as you can. You want to ask um, relevant questions. And you can also volunteer on projects. So I volunteered on several projects just to be able to have closer perspective into what what they're doing. So all of this, I think, will be very helpful. And also um, some books that I was able to kind of read about platform product management. I read books like The Phoenix Project. You know, so many books about platform product management. Yeah, I think it's The Phoenix Project and The Unicorn Project. So those two books were very instrumental to my curiosity and platform product manager. So it gives me the kind of um, end-to-end understanding of, okay, what are we doing? Where is this impact in the company? All of those questions might be ambiguous when you start. You'll be clueless. You don't know what you're doing, but it takes years. It takes days. It takes being curious. It takes asking the right question. It takes being with the right people who want to support and help you to understand. All right. Speaking of asking the right questions, anybody here in the audience, I've asked my questions and I have a few more to get us going. But if anybody in the audience has a question or a comment, if you want to share your own experience in platform product management or what they've said about platform product management compares to your own experience as a product manager of a different type of product, or if you have a question for them. Again, anything we'd love to hear from you, raise your hand and hop up on stage here in a moment. And then while I'm uh, getting Rakesh up here, tell you about, do you have any questions for Ria? Is there any questions that are on your mind that you'd like to hear from your other panelists? Yeah, absolutely. If anybody on the audience can be helpful in some of the questions that I try to understand or comprehend in my role is how do companies decide on what projects they're doing. So within my organization, for example, we have to kind of figure out, okay, we think this particular platform needs enhancement. Okay, we are proposing this, but is that the same thing across organizations? Or is it a case where your team needs to be the one to kind of figure out that there's a loophole and we need to make this better? Or the company is saying, this is what our next big thing is. We want you to do it. So how do you prioritize in that situation? Is it always coming from, you know, in a bureaucratic way, like, oh, you, you guys need to do this? Or is it coming more from an innovative space of, okay, we as platform PMs, we are thinking we should do this. 
That's a great, great question. I would love for you to answer it too <laughs> in your organization. But I think it's a mix of both, right? Like your like leadership and execs need to know kind of what the value is and what the star value. Usually it's a couple services kind of put together of the platform is. And like, are we going to put a lot of investment in that? So that's kind of going, that should be going. You should really understand, you know, where the business is headed and why and where our competitive advantage is. Past that, really. There are like key places that hopefully people are investing in and like teams are invested in, like we're going to build out kind of this pillar and we're going to build out this pillar. But, you know, within those pillars specifically, I think the team holds that roadmap. But there's also a strategy portion, right? There's usually key results or OKRs that like we need to reach this amount of this amount of usage or this amount of like revenue. And there's a reason why for it, we, we dug into X, Y, and Z analysis and we know we want to get here. So we're on a really good track for actually like building a really comprehensive business. And so that also, that strategy should also be there. And so you're kind of supported in all angles, you know what your competitive advantage is, you kind of know what the strategy for the business is, And then you're kind of able to look within your pillar and say, how can I make those key results that our entire organization is working on? Like, how can I make that go faster? And you're trying to make sure that you're aligning your projects with that kind of advantage and with those key results as much as possible. And then all the other things, like maybe it's maintenance, maybe it's tech deck, like your your team has to prioritize that. And I think the team ultimately holds a roadmap for what they build and why, and they're accountable for what they're doing. And that's, you know, where team OKRs can come into play to really show that off. Like, how are you contributing to X, Y, and Z metrics? And what are you going to specifically do within your quarter, your projects and we're pretty fast moving. So we do this every quarter. I mean, we, we look at the entire list of projects per maybe outcome or area every year, every six months. And then every quarter, we kind of relook at that and think about here are the three or four projects that these teams are going to go and run at. We, we align that with you know our, our cross-functional leaders and our cross-functional folks, and then we go for it. So it's a really dynamic process. And I really like that process. We spent a lot of time kind of figuring out the right way to prioritize and and yeah, so awesome. And we have Rakesh here, who I believe has experience. Do you want to chime in what you've seen? I would de- definitely like to chime in. And some parts of it were discussed. So I feel the key over here is alignment. And how does the alignment really comes in? Right. Like so, number one, I would say, what has your business objectives been or your company objectives been? Say, for example, for 2023, right? Now, if one of those object objectives or maybe couple of those objectives tie into a single platform. That's how one should prioritize, right? Like, you know, it could be, I'm just taking examples over here. It could be something on installments in finance, or it could be loan distance or disbursement. So both of them could be using a similar platform product. So as I mentioned, alignment and, uh, you know, panelists over here also discussed about alignment. Alignment is the key. If everyone decides, okay, what is the company's objectives for 2023? And based on that, which platforms should be enhanced or certain features should be added? I think so that's the way to prioritize for certain platforms so that not every product has a redundant code written for themselves. It should be something which can be reused. It could be reusable. And so that it can be scalable as well. Like, you know, there was mentions about AWS. So grouping it into the right APIs, making them right microservices. I think so that's also very important in order to scale platforms as a product. 
Thank you, Rakesh. And then, so tell you about my outside perspective. So I'm a professor uh, talking to a bunch of companies. The reputation, at least, I can't speak for specifics in every team, is that Amazon and Google are known for being more bottom-up. So it comes from the product manager. And then Microsoft, I think Meta kind of falls in either one. I can't, I don't know where that goes. But Microsoft is known for being more top-down, and Apple is another one that's more top-down. If anybody here wants to dispute that or share their own perspective, I'd love for that. But that's just the general perspective from lots of people talking, I guess. Unnamed gossip without it being gossip. It's uh, So anyway. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So it does change a lot by the company from what I've heard and what I understand. All right. So Rakesh, you raised your hand. Welcome. A reminder, this is being recorded and distributed as the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. So I'll refrain from using your last name unless you would like to. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to add to the conversation or anything you wanted to ask of our panelists? So this is one question, and we briefly touched upon it, which at times I see many people struggle with. And I would like to understand, you know, how what's the best framework or what's the best methodology to go about it? So with platform as products, there are many tech imperatives. I won't call it tech depths, but there are many tech imperatives like, you know, there are many open sources which are tied in to build a platform product, or there could be some certificates which re need renewal, right? So there's a lot of engineering capacity which is gone every year in these tech imperatives. So what's your experience in balancing the business features versus the tech imperatives? Who wants this one? That's a tough call. <laughs> so I don't have much experience in this, but I'll talk a little bit about what I've seen in the short time that I've been with um, American Express, I've seen that when it comes to prioritizing with tech depth, tech imperative, like you said, and business features, it's more like a strategy decision. So we go back to them to let them know that these are what we have and these are business requirements. And together we can kind of refine, okay, which is, if it's a legacy requirement, for example, for the tech depth, then we, we give that, of course, priority over others. Otherwise, then there are other reasons that allows us to make the decision on which is more important at that time. So that's what I've seen so far. It might be more than that, but based on the experience that I've had in a couple months, that's what I've seen. Yeah, that's definitely a hard one. I would say the platform product manager, like we're really focusing on the product, right? And the customer output and the services and the competitive advantage that we offer. And of course, like maintaining these services is a huge thing, but I would like, I do expect engineering teams to tell me the, the cost benefit, right? Like if we do this thing, we're going to get, we're going to optimize our service by this much and we're going to save X amount of money. That sounds like a great thing to invest in. Maybe not right now because we're so early, but maybe like down the line. So always kind of looking at all the extra things we want to do in like quantitative terms so they can actually have an impact on, you know, the messaging and like the way that I would talk about, this is why we're prioritizing this. It's going to do X, Y, and Z to our business outcomes. And it's a net positive for everybody. Right. And if it's other things like, I don't know, rotating certs, like it, if that doesn't happen, like things just go down, like you just have to do it and you have to plan for it ahead of time and make sure you know when these things are landing and what it's going to take away from. And that's just working with your engineering team and being really detail oriented and kind of on top of it. So, but I, I also expect like engineering to hold a, a blunt of that too. Like they, they understand what it takes to, to maintain these services. We have an SLA to uphold. We know what our, what we need to operate at. And if anything's going to take that down, like we need to talk about it and prioritize it in the right, 
frame of mind. But at the end of the day, I think the product manager, like we kind of own all faces of the product, but really focusing on quantifying all of these potentials is, is what makes it easier for me. All right, Rakesh, thank you so much for that question. I'd love for you to stick around. Now it's time for a segment we introduced just recently, Buzzword Blitz. Buzzword Blitz, it's a new game we're playing where we've asked people to give us about 50 buzzwords, product management buzzwords, and then I'm going to have you pick three of them randomly, and then we're going to see who the first person is who could pull these buzzwords together into one coherent piece of advice for platform product managers. So real quick, tell you about, give me uh, three numbers between one and 50. One, seven, and 10. All right. So again, we're going to see who the first person is. It's got to be really tight. So not like a full on monologue, but just a real tight piece of advice for platform product managers with these three buzzwords, zero to one, first cut, and vision. Zero to one, first cut vision. Just come off mute and dive in and those playing along at home, see if you could do better than them. What's your piece of advice? I would like to go to Shard though. So go for once it. an organization has common or an aligned vision, should they go for the first cut of the platform product and build the zero to one to, to scale it further? I'm not so sure if that really made sense. It could be going the other way. Like the vision comes first and then you get the first cut and then you build the zero to one basically. So it's, it's all about the aligned vision and you take the first tab or the first cut and you have an MVP out there and then you build your zero to one product. All right, throwing in an extra buzzword, that's number six is MVP. Thank you, Rakesh, first one in. Tell you about Aria, do you wanna to try to top it or do we wanna let that stand with Rakesh as the winner of Buzzword Blitz here? Let's keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rhea? I have one. Yeah, go for it. To go, <laughs> to go from <laughs> zero to one, you need a vision. And the first cut is the MVP of the product. Oh, okay. If those who want, uh, those who vote for Rhea, give us a thumbs up. Those who vote for Rakesh, give us a clap. We're going to let audience participation. Rakesh um, is a clap. Rhea is a thumbs up. All right. The crowd is shy here, but it looks about evenly cut. The thumbs up are coming. All right. I don't know if we want to declare a winner on the recorded podcast, but Rakesh and Rhea, you saw the audience that they both seem to like each of yours. So thank you so much for playing Buzzword Blitz. We've got about 10 more minutes. If anybody else had a question or comment, we welcome you on stage. Rakesh, you're free to hang out here on stage or pop back down to the audience. Up to you. But I want to give Rhea a chance. Rhea, Toybot had a question. Do you have any questions for our fellow panelists? Yeah. I mean, I would love to know why you're a platform product manager and if like, if this is something you can see yourself doing for a long period of time. And if so, why? Like, what do you love the role? Do you not? Yeah. Yeah. If I'll take that, I'll say it's a mix of both. Sometimes I'm like, why am I here? And sometimes it's fun. But most importantly, it's been a learning curve. And I think that's um, the most important thing. I don't trust just my feelings when I'm doing something. So I like to be critical about, okay, am I doing it, you know, the way I should? Okay, then I'm doing the right thing. Okay, maybe I'm being lazy or whatever in this situation. So it's been a learning curve for me, trying to, you know, understand how things get done. So yeah, I would, I would say it's a, it's a bit of both. I can't say for sure that this is something that I want to do long term because I believe that um, my interest might change tomorrow. But right now that I'm here, um, this is something that I really enjoy. 
and I'll just keep it that way. If I may, as Rakesh here. So being on the platform product side, what interests me, so I've been in both the sides, you know, like I've been in um, building products, which directly in, interacts with the end consumer, whereas the APIs could be, or the product, the platform product could be interacting, could be interacting with an end consumer, but not necessarily, it may be interacting with a B2B consumer, right? So I've been in both the spaces. I don't know which one of it works better for me, but at the moment, when we build platform products, the thing which interests me more is how do we build scalability in the product? How do we build a platform product which can be easily lifted and shifted to a different geography? And what I mean by that is what works in the United States may not necessarily work in South Africa. The regulatory and the compliance is totally different out over there. So how do you retrofit your product there? Or how do you go, go ahead and meet an on-soil requirement in some place, right? So that's the challenging piece for me, which makes the platform as a product very interesting to me. And I'm loving this space for now. And Jeff, I just had one more comment, which I would, I would like to add and would like, love to hear the feedback. So when building platform products, there are some key matrices which we follow up. And I would like to understand what are the other matrices that the other companies follow, you know, like MTTRs, MTTMs, so mean time to resolve, mean time to mitigate. Those are some key elements, you know, because if your API is down or if your platform product is down, right, what's the mean mitigation time? How are you routing your traffic in the right direction? How are you really load balancing? And what's your take or strategy on A-B testing? so that you can roll out features which do not impact a lot of your customers. So what are those, some of those key matrices as well as you know, how do you make products go live without disrupting or impacting any of your consumers? Great question, who's got answers? I'll take that. Basically on my team, we have the testing team, functional and performance at the same time. So. In all of this that we're doing, they're always involved. Theirs is to manage the incidence management for, you know, velocity or whatever. So they already know what to test. They are aware of what we're building from inception up to production and to release. So we are not doing anything without them. They are the ones that tell us, okay, I think you're not thinking about this. Okay, we need to think more about this. So MTBF, MTTR, MT, MTTA, all of that, together build test cases to see how these functionalities are going to scale and you know at the long run. All right, concluding thoughts. So I might try to steal two concluding thoughts if that's all right. But one, I just have to say, tell you about, I'm so proud that you are here sharing some excellent insights with everybody. For those just joining us or didn't hear in the intro, tell you about was in the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. It's not a certificate, it's a family trying to empower professionals who are have a, a mind for inclusion who are, are dedicated to building a more inclusive future. We paired Toyobot and others with a mentor. We had a 12-week 
I think it was 10 weeks when Toyobot was in, but it's now a 12-week curriculum where they polish off their product management skills and then are ready to go. And it's so cool to see the family environment that's being created. It's so great to see the successful people that are coming through here, through the program, and then giving back. So congrats, Toyobot, for all that you've achieved. And thank you for being a part of the family. This is awesome. Thank you, Jeff, for the initiative. I mean, all of you guys, you give the platform. That's a big deal. Thank you. Oh, yeah, I guess it it is the platform. Although I got to be honest, when we built this platform, I was more worried about learning and going fast and and making an impact as quickly as we could, less on the scalability. So it's interesting to hear all the three of you focusing on scalability right off the bat. And so, yeah, we built for speed and impact and some things break. And then you're right that it takes a lot to go back and then fix versus building it right the first time. But yeah. Great conversation here. And Rio, very nice to meet you. So I'm going to give you first shot at concluding thoughts. Since uh, we've just met today, grateful that you contributed your insights to the Product Management Center community here. What would you like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I've been thinking about this and I was like, I really want to talk about it. So I'll leave this as a concluding thought. I just want to say there are different kinds of platform PMs. Like you can be someone that wants to kind of settle in kind of new land and you want to figure out kind of what the vision and the strategy and this kind of new industry or this new product is going to go and enable and you're kind of you're moving quickly that way you can be someone that's introducing a new product to market and you're kind of putting all the pieces together and then you could be someone that's then taking that product and making it operationally efficient i've seen pms on each part i've seen pms love each piece of that journey and you can be a pm that likes one over the other and i would say like for example for me I'm definitely on that earlier stage sort of PM. I love just putting a stake in the ground, figuring out how we get there and kind of introducing a product to market and, you know, less about the the stuff that comes after I I might jump (laughs) by the time you get there. So that's my concluding thought. There's different parts of the journey. And so you don't have to like all parts. All right. Thank you, Rhea. Rakesh, do you have a short concluding thought you want to make sure the audience takes away on platform product management? Sure, I can. I would say, you know, being a platform product manager, one needs to be, at least it worked for me, if one hails from an engineering background, it helps. Or if one is familiar with technology, it really helps in driving your conversations with engineering teams. Because at times, or you really need to empathize with your engineering team and their thoughts as well. So I'll leave you with that small thought. All right. Thank you, Rakesh. Thanks for joining us, raising your hand, asking good questions and giving good comments here. Tell you about, we're going to end with you. Any concluding thoughts? I think I very much resonate with what Rakesh said about empathizing with engineers (laughs) because um, we cannot do anything without them. So one of the skills that I'm prioritizing for this year is the art of communication with across functional teams. I mean, understanding where they're coming from and how I can get them to see where I'm coming from. Alignment. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ria, Toyabat, and Rakesh. Appreciate you sharing your insights with the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast here today. And thank you all for listening. And next week, we have a conversation. We're going to bring a professor who's got new research on when to 
ship new features as updates versus as wait to include them in a premium version of a product. So we've got a professor who got her PhD at Stanford, and then we have a product manager from Ticketmaster, and hopefully we will have Sumeya and Red back for another round of how to succeed in product management. Again, my name is Jeff Shulman. I'm the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. I hope you'll join us, mentor in our IPMA program. And also I have to say, we have an inclusive product management summit First time ever, it's going to be live and in person here in Seattle, May 12th and May 13th. A great chance to learn from some of the best and become the best and make lifelong friends among people who are realizing that inclusion is a path to success and traditional success metrics in product management. So come join us to the Inclusive Product Management Summit, May 12th and May 13th here in Seattle. In the podcast, you'll be able to click on the link in the description. Otherwise, you might just have to Google it if you're here today live. Thank you, Ria. Thank you, Toyabot. Thank you, Rakesh. This was a fantastic conversation. See everybody next week.